Well, today we continue back in our series in the book of Genesis. Uh, this is a series that we started quite a while ago, and uh, from now and the next handful of weeks here, we're going to finish the book, uh, which is exciting. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, Genesis, let me give you a bit, a bit of background. Genesis can be divided up into two different sections, and the book is all about beginnings and origins. So the first half, or Genesis 1 to 11, or the first section, is all about the history of of the world up until the patriarchs, or the fathers of the faith. The second section from Genesis 12 to the end is all about the history of the patriarchs, or the fathers of the faith. And the fathers of the faith we know are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then now we turn to look at Joseph. And what drives the story forward from chapter 12 on is that God in his grace promised Abraham three things. Number one, God promised he would give him a land. Number two, God promised that a great number of people would come from his line. And then number three, that one from his line would be the blessing to all the nations that came from his lineage. And ultimately, this is Jesus Christ himself. So this nation is, in fact, God's Old Testament chosen people. It's a people built on the patriarchs of the faith. Abraham, as I mentioned, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob also known as Israel. So we're going to be referring to Jacob by his newest name, that is Israel. And for the rest of Genesis, the focus is on one of the 12 sons of Israel, namely Joseph, largely, largely Joseph. So we zero in on mostly Joseph, and the scenes take place in the backdrop, while we're looking at this individual, the scenes take place in the backdrop of God's sovereignty and his providence in salvation history. Him giving his grace to a people that did not deserve it. So I invite you to join me in turning to Genesis chapter 36, which can be found on page 30 if you're using those black Bibles there in front of you. Genesis chapter 36. And today we look at uh, three chapters, 36, 37, and 38. And I'll give you a brief overview. If you look over in Genesis chapter 36, uh, which I won't say much about this chapter, it's a genealogy of the lineage of a man named Esau. And Esau is, was Israel's twin brother. So remember I told you that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph a kingdom, a people coming from their line? Well, here God is also showing us uh, that for Esau, too, he is giving him a kingdom, a nation. And it makes us readers think, well, okay, if Esau's kingdom, right, he's the... He is the one who doesn't follow God. In fact, he's the one who rejects God. If God is growing his kingdom, well, what about God's people? When will God let his own chosen people flourish? And no doubt God's chosen people do indeed flourish. I mean, they are Israel. And like all of God's people, we go through trials and we wrestle with some serious sin. And so before getting to the genealogy, the lineage of everyone who comes from uh, Israel or Jacob, Jacob's line... Here we see that God's people continue to wrestle with some serious stuff. I mean, these right here, the 12 sons of Israel that go on and make the 12 tribes of Israel. Man, they are some messed up people. And here we should actually find encouragement because we are just like they are. These chapters and really the rest of Genesis goes to show that God keeps his people in his grace by his grace. God keeps his people in his grace and by his grace. And he does so 
despite their sinfulness. Chapters 37 and 38 are dark chapters about God's people's sin. In 37, we see that the brothers, they turn on their own brother. And more importantly, we see there in 38, that God's people can actually turn on God and his law. But yet, of course, the main point, God keeps his people in his grace and by his grace. Let's look at at Israel's sons as they abandon their brother Joseph. This is point number one, and it's chapter 37. This is the first point. Israel's sons abandon their brother Joseph, chapter 37. This Joseph story is infamous, filled with hatred, jealousy, and deceit as brothers turn against their own flesh and blood. And this story is really packed full filled with hatred and jealousy. So look at 37.4. 37.4. And you see that this word continues to come up. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You look over at 37.5, right? Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And then 37.8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? Here's my point. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then 37.11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here they're, they hate, they're jealous, they covet, and this moves them to, in fact, as we're going to see, attempts to kill him. But why so much hatred, at least in the passage? Why so much hatred going on? Well, really, it is because of sin. We know that Genesis is about its beginnings. We know that Genesis is also about the beginnings of sin, as man rebelled against their creator and rejected him and chose to live under, away from God's authority, instead of living under God's authority. And here, because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, where they rejected his word, sin then entered into the world and Now, according to the Bible, it affects everybody. So we are all born with sinful natures, and we all uh, desire to transgress or or cross God's boundaries. And then you even see family hatred uh, throughout the book of Genesis. So the first murder, for example, we got the murder of Abel. So Cain rises up and kills his very own brother. And there we remind of the fact that the seed of the serpent, so those who reject God... They actually are set against those who love God. And so Cain is one of the seeds of the serpent, and he is battling battling against uh, those who love God. And you see those brothers hate each other. And then we can go on with other brothers. We have Ishmael and Isaac, and then, of course, their mothers, too. Both of the mothers, and then the brothers, they had beef with one another. That leads to great uh, division. But you know what, frankly... Oh, and then then we got... uh, Israel and Esau, or Jacob and Esau, the twins. Esau wanted to rip off the head of his brother for stealing his blessing. But this is all actually very much expected again. Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the serpent is going to battle against the seed of the, of the woman. And eventually the seed of the woman, namely Jesus, is going to win and reign. But that's expected. You have people who, who don't agree with God, who reject God, and then those who love God. But the story today that we look at here is different. It's a story about the people of God and their infighting. So it makes it particularly heinous or disturbing as we see people within the family of God 
try and take each other out. It's good for us to know, isn't it? And expect that though we are the people of God, we still wrestle with sin. And indeed, living a life underneath submission to God is always going to be difficult, even within the church. But thank God that, as I prayed for earlier, reconciliation is possible if we repent and believe. And certainly those who are in the blood of Jesus, reconciliation is sure. And we ought to pray for that grace as we face this spiritual battle as we've been learning about from Ephesians. So what contributed to all of this hatred towards Joseph other than sin? The first reason is because Israel favored Joseph. Look there in 37.3. It says there that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Now when we read this as we're going through the book of Genesis... This, we really should be like slapping our foreheads and shaking our heads, thinking this guy is so foolish. Israel himself had grown up in a family largely ruined by favoritism. Israel's parents played favorites. We remember, right, his parents. We have Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Isaac loved Esau, one twin, and Rebekah loved Israel, the other twin. And then we know that that story leads to deceit, it leads to cheating, it leads to lying, plotting, it brings division, and it results in disunity. All because of this favoritism. And unfortunately, like father, like son here, Israel still struggles with these problems, it seems. And this favoritism showed itself in at least a couple different ways. Israel entrusted Joseph uh, with more important tasks. It's like he brings them into his inner circle and his inner council. As the story kicks off there, what is Joseph doing? Look there. He's bringing a bad report on his brothers. Later on in the story, in 37.14, Israel sends him out to bring back word on his brothers. So here, you know, he's, he's like a tattletale. And if you are one of his ten older brothers, he also had one younger brother, but at this point in time, the younger brother is very young. Uh, if you were one of the ten older brothers, you would have been so annoyed. Some of you guys are probably annoyed at the favoritism that... Your parents might show the older brother. Here, at this point in time, Joseph is just 17. Just a young little squirt. Still growing, still maturing to manhood. Entrusted by dad to check up on us. And not only that, but in 37.3, it says dad made Joseph a special coat. It's a symbol of all the privilege that the brothers desire, but do not possess. We all know how this jealousy works. If you want the love of someone else and you cannot get it, don't you begin to hate, to hate intensely everything else that you compete with? A silly example. For our ninth anniversary, Melly and I went to Northern Ireland. I mean, how cool is that, right? We get to go to Northern Ireland. We had never been there. A dear friend that I discipled in Dubai and he had trained for the pastoral ministry, uh, he had met an Irish gal. And uh, soon enough, they were going to get married, and they invited us to participate in their wedding. And so we went. And, it, you know, I was thinking, you know, what a great time to relax and relate. You know, we were in Ireland of all places. Well, I just imagine all walking the beautiful coastline, seeing the seas that we had never seen before. You know, this is our nine-year anniversary. But Melanie, at her cousin's suggestion, she doesn't know that, I'm, that I had prepared this example... And her cousin's suggestion decided to begin reading The Hunger Games right before we left. 
And, I kid you not, for basically the entire flight to Ireland, and then during a good portion of our nine-year anniversary vacation, it wasn't me and Mel who were resting and relating. It was Mel and Katniss Everdeen. And I began to despise Katniss Everdeen and the Hunger Games. I wanted to throw the books away. I wanted to burn the Hunger Games. It's a silly example. Really, you know, I didn't harbor hostility that much. Uh, But I was competing against a made-up story. And I wanted it out of our relationship. We understand how this goes. If you've ever struggled with jealousy, that's what's going on with the brothers, except here they're not doing it with an inanimate object. They're doing it with a human, their very own brother. Look there at verse 4. And so it says... When they saw that their, bro- their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. So that's one contributing factor. Father plays favorites. Another one, Joseph. He contributes to the situation as well, though not nearly as much as those around him. Joseph seems to delight in this position as the favorite. He's a bit of a teacher's pet. You know, a tattletale, as I mentioned earlier, he brings a bad report. Later on, he's, he goes and he's like a spy, spying out on his brothers. And, and he does so rightly, you know. I mean, these guys are no saints. In chapter 34, it shows that these brothers are given to violence and anger and revenge. And so they go wipe out a city in their violence and bitterness. So imagine not only is the brother, not only does the brother uh, possess privilege... Symbolized by the coat of many colors, he's also Mr. Goody Two Shoes. So here we now now the, the layers are, are 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 coming on to Joseph here. But there's one thing that makes these brothers absolutely loco, insane in the membrane, as some say, is that Joseph assumes or presumes privilege. Right? It's one thing for 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 people to know that privilege exists. It's another thing for that person to assume and lay hold of that privilege. He talks as if he deserves it. According to their custom, uh, him speaking about this privilege was so much more in their face because, once again, he had ten older brothers and the privilege and the authority, the responsibility went first to the eldest brother and then if that were not possible, then, then to the younger and then to the younger. He has ten older brothers who are in line of greater authority and responsibility than he is. How does he assume his privilege? This brings us to Joseph's dreams there in verses 5 to 11. So he not only possesses the task of privilege and he wears privilege, but he also dreams about it. In these verses, Joseph has two dreams. Both dreams are about the same thing, his privilege and his authority over his family. The first dream, look there, verses 6 and 7. I'll go ahead and read that. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose, arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So here he's not talking about worship. He's talking about authority. He's talking about privilege. He's talking about greater respect even. He's, it, it, the meaning is clearly clear here. You know, when you go out to bind, uh, bind up the wheat, you go and you harvest during the harvest time and you bind them all together and you stack them up and you lay all the bundles together. Here he's saying that his sheaf stood upright and all the others were on the ground bowing down towards him. The second dream is exactly the same, although it's a little bit more encompassing. Look there at verse 9. 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Good job, Joseph. And said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, this one's a little bit more encompassing. It doesn't only involve the brothers, as in the stars. It also involves the sun and the moon, or the father and the mother. And so here, you know, Israel's comment there, as it says, uh, look there in verse 10, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and brothers indeed bow down? bow ourselves to the ground before you? So his mother's long been dead by this time. So Israel's comment here carries more of the notion of, you know, something like, will you, Joseph, be remembered as greatest amongst all of your family? That's what it means there, even though his mother's gone. And so he rebukes him. It's interesting here that the the author, the, the narrator, which is Moses, as Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, you know, he's not condemning Joseph for having the dreams. He's just relating that his father rebukes him for these dreams. What does this produce there in verse 11? His brothers were jealous. Interesting end though. It says that his father kept these sayings in mind. It reminds us of Mary. When the angels arrive and they announce that this son is the Christ. And those around her are like, they're puzzled. You know, they're wondering what exactly is going on here. But Mary, in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, she ponders the words in her heart. So it looks like Jacob, even though it's clear that he sins and plays favorites here, it looks like he's trying to humbly submit himself to the word of God. At that time, God had not given his word, and so he revealed himself to dreams, or through dreams. Of course, this fall is not primarily on Israel. Nor is it on Joseph primarily, but it's on the brothers. So look there in verse 12. Starting from verse 12, we see the hatred, jealousy, bitterness of the brothers there as it gives birth to murderous intentions. As mentioned earlier, the father sends uh, Joseph onto this mission, uh, which is basically he needs to travel 50 miles away to check on his brothers. And get this, it's in the same city, right? He sends Joseph to the same city where his brothers had committed uh, this the great acts of violence where they took ungodly revenge against a royalty who had raped and approved of the rape of their sister. So there they are shepherding their flocks in that same city where there was great murder and Israel tells Joseph to go and bring me back a word. So you know that something's going to happen. Eventually he catches up to them and look at their response verses 18 to 20. They saw him from afar and before he came near to them they conspired against him. To kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Look at this. That, that antagonism here is there is his dreams stand for his privilege. This guy who dreams of these crazy things. So their plan is to kill him and then throw him into a cistern, which is like a bottle-shaped uh, space in the ground that could hold water. And it could be as deep as 20 feet. So you know, if you're thrown in there. And at that point, we're going to see that uh, it wasn't filled with water. You're expecting them to be torn apart by wild animals, right? Sure. They're just, uh, he's going to be thrown into this place that has no water. But Reuben, as you're scanning those verses there, Reuben being the responsible oldest brother, you know, he would have been the one responsible to his father for if anything were to happen to any of them. Being the responsible oldest brother, he steps in to rescue Joseph, at least from death. I think his plan is to Look, let's just throw him into the pit, and then I'm going to go back and rescue him. So that's what happens. 21, look there. Let us not take his life, shed no blood, just throw him into the pit. 
So here, jealousy gives birth to a whole slew of sins of hatred, bitterness, rebellion against their father, murderous intentions. And we'll see soon, we have lying, distrust, division, kidnapping, particular, and then uh, participating in slavery, which God would eventually declare to be a capital crime based on the law. You can see there, verse 20, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. And they, here they're given over to bitterness, jealousy, hatred. James 3, verse 16, affirms everything that goes on with the bitterness of the heart. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you know anything of this jealousy and covetousness? Now, we aren't exactly told what the brothers are jealous about. It could be the father's love. It could be the coat. Most likely, it's the position of authority and how in your face it is. But regardless, they are jealous and they covet. Now, I trust that we all struggle with jealousy and covetousness to some degree. And I assume and I trust that your jealousy is not working its way into your life where you want to kill other people. If it, if it is working in that way, please come talk to me. Come to your uh, mature Christian brothers and sisters. You know, there's forgiveness for all sorts of sins, as we're going to see. Right? So to some degree, this, this verse here is cluing into us the very nature of the human heart and how normal it is to think these things. I think the average person who wrestles with jealousy and covetousness wrestles with it in a more... With in more morally acceptable intentions, though equally sinful in the eyes of God. But do you know why this is a sin, jealousy and covetousness? You know, it's obviously a sin because of what, what happens to other things and other people. Uh, so right here, obviously, they're gonna, they're, they seek to kill him, seek to sell him into slavery, right? That's bad. It's obviously a sin there. God wrote this law in his Ten Commandments to not covet. Perhaps he had this incident particularly in mind, right? It leads to the harming of other people. These brothers throw their other brother under the bus to get a little bit of what he is going to have. And ironically, for what he is going to give them at the end of the story. But it's also a sin because of what it does to God. In jealousy, we throw God under a bus. When we are jealous and coveting, we actually reject God. The connection is kind of odd, but when we are jealous and covet, we reject God. As one author writes, and I think it's spot on, it says, When a man covets, he is unable to enjoy the presence of God. At that moment, the greatest thing of need is not God, but that thing. I wonder what that thing is for you. Right? What is it that you dream about? When it's late at night, you've got nothing to do, no responsibilities, and you're free to surf the internet to imagine doing whatever it is that you do. Driving a car that can do the quarter mile under 10 seconds. Some people might dream about it. What are you scheming to get? What are you surfing the internet for? And why? When we covet, foremost in our minds is the thing that we want. We dream about it. We scheme about how to get it. We become so full of desire that our hearts have no room to experience God's gracious presence. 
And in so doing, we stop at nothing to be satisfied, at least we think, in the things that we desire. And those things are not God. And then we displace God as our satisfaction who supplies all of our needs in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. Do you guys know what this jealousy is like? This covetousness is like? And even this bitterness, what it's like? I've struggled with bitterness myself. I think it's similar to the bitterness here that's going on with the brothers. You imagine, I imagine, you know, this bitterness to be like a highway. And, you know, let's say one lane is dedicated to bitterness in my sin. But then when I'm consumed with it, it's almost like all lanes are to the full of traffic jam of bitterness. And every single lane is just filled. And it's so hard to think about other things and think rightly apart from the grace of God. That's what's going on here with the people of God. Hatred and jealousy have filled their hearts that there is no room for God. And we see a little more of what's really going on in their hearts as the story continues. You know, you'd hope they'd at least have a little bit of remorse here. Look, verse 24, this is what they do. And they took him and threw him. Or look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. The robe of many colors that he wore. No authority. They're not going to give it to him. They refuse. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. I mean, there's so many ironies here. Right? I mean, they're trying to kill him for the very thing that they are going to need. The authority. The responsibility. The royalty that he is given. They try and kill him for it. And their hearts were set against them. And look at verse 25. You know, you think that they'd have a little bit, of, a little bit of remorse, but verse 25, they sat down to eat. That's what they do. And as they eat, they see the Ishmaelites, as your verses scan those, as your eyes scan those verses, they see Ishmaelite traders going on their way. You know, this is going to get worse here. Right? You have the descendants of Isaac selling one of their own relatives to the descendants of Ishmael to go down to Egypt. This is a bad situation. The seed of the serpent, they're handing over the seed, one of the seed of the woman to the seed of the serpent. And anyways, these traders were on their way to Egypt. They were bringing gum, balm, and myrrh, all things used to embalm bodies, which Egypt was known for. So as they see these traders, the brother Judah comes up with a plan, which seems to be driven by self-interest. Look there at verse 26. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Look what he's after. He's after profit, this little stinker. He says, killing is not so economical, guys. Let's sell him instead. That's the heart there that's leaking. Unfortunately, Joseph so happens to be the commodity. And so for 20 pieces of silver, which is a standard, uh, standard price to sell a slave at that time, History records show us Joseph then is off to Egypt. It's not good. And so we have the beginnings of this Joseph story where Joseph is abandoned. And we'll just address Joseph in future weeks how God never abandons those who are abandoned. But as the story moves forward, we continue to focus on the wayward brothers. We continue to focus on those who abandon. Here we got the brothers, the people of God, abandoning their own brother. The eleven future heads of the tribes of Israel, or the 11 tribes of Israel, the heads of them, are abandoning number 12. 
As the story develops, our focus lands on one wayward brother in particular. That's Judah. Chapter 38. Judah, I think, functions as a representative of all the brothers. It's very important. I think Judah here represents, uh, is a representative of all the brothers in his abandonment of those closest to him. The brothers all abandoned. Now, they say, Moses helps us look at this one particular brother who ends up being a leader in Israel. And they look at his abandonment of those closest to him. So Judah's loved ones abandoned him. Judah's loved ones abandoned him. This is point number two. Chapter 38. Judah's loved ones abandoned by him. I'll repeat that again because I think I messed it up earlier. Judah's loved ones abandoned by him. So earlier we got the brothers abandon Joseph. Here we have Judah abandoning his loved ones. Chapter 38. This is all about God's people's failures here. Judah here, he fails to cling to God's desires. He forsakes righteousness. And the first thing he's seen doing is he goes and finds himself a Canaanite wife. Which God had already told his forefathers not to do that. In the Bible, marrying a foreign wife typically meant being wed to their foreign gods as well. So here Judah is not caring about God's word. And these, remember, these stories here parallel one another. You have the abandonment of Joseph, and then all of a sudden it switches over to Judah as he abandons others. Well, why is it? Because you have these parallel stories going on. Soon Judah's not going to be in the picture, and then the story will move forward with Joseph. But again, he stands here as a representative of all the brothers. Anyways, according to this story, he has a few children with his wife. But his, his relationship with his wife is not the subject of the chapter here. The bulk of this chapter concerns what Judah fails to do with one of his daughters-in-law. What really gets the story going is what happens to his sons. Look there in verse 7 of chapter 38. Well, look there, 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Uh, it's not stated why he was put to death, but it's clear that Tamar needs to be taken care of at this point in time. Uh, it's obvious she needs a husband. She needs children to continue the husband's line, and this practice is known as a leveret marriage as is described in, in uh, the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, it was meant to be a safety net of provision, actually, where a widow uh, could marry the brother-in-law of her, or sorry, her brother-in-law, and then the children that would come out of that union would be counted as hers and the deceased. So it's a way of continuing on the lineage by her marrying her brother-in-law, or the deceased's brother. And... Um, Verse 8, Judah says to Onan, this is, this is how the story moves forward here. Uh, Onan, the next brother, uh, Judah says, look, go into your wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law. But it's not only Judah that forsakes his responsibilities of those closest to him, it's also Onan. Onan forsakes his covenant responsibilities and for selfish gain, look there in verse 9. Onan, knowing that he would have to pay for the children and bear the responsibility, even though they wouldn't be counted as his children... He then wastes his semen on the ground during the act. So he's obviously keeping children from Tamar, and God therefore judges him. 
It's not ultimately judgment for wasting semen on the ground in and of itself, but it is for rejecting his covenant responsibilities. Now at this point in time, the covenant is not written down. The law is not written down, but it will be written down eventually. So here, we're dealing with a law that God writes on people's hearts. And here, Odin does not care. But the focus, though, is on Judah, the father. Judah also disregards his covenant responsibilities. In verse 11, Judah tells Tamar to remain in her father's house. Go back to your father's house so that when my youngest son, Shelah, is grown, then you guys can be married and then your line can continue. The problem, though, is that he never follows through. The responsibility towards those closest to him, he disregards. And Tamar knows this. Look at verse 14. She saw that Shelah was grown, but was not given to Shelah in marriage. This is a big deal, right? To Tamar, this is her, her security. This is her future. She has no retirement. She has no social security. This is really about survival. So realizing what is at stake, she seizes an opportunity. Judah's wife dies. Look there in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And Judah was comforted. When he, or when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Ahira, the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and as she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So here she seizes the opportunity on her own. She takes the initiative, dress up like a prostitute, someone who sells her their body for money, and then uh, she stands on the roadside there, knowing that her father-in-law would be there. Look at verse 17, or 16. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me? That you may come into me. Now, right here, of course, we're supposed to think, right, Judah at this point in time should have already given her lots of things. She should have, he should have provided Sheila for her as her new husband, but she did, he did not. So when she says, what will you give me? You're supposed to think, Judah is really failing his covenant responsibilities. Eventually, Judah says, uh, I'll give you my signet, which was basically like a seal that was attached to a cord, and this cord would be uh, worn around the neck or, or around the waist here, the cord. Uh, and then his staff. So these are all very personal things of the person of God, so giving them over to this prostitute. But you see, this is about covenant fidelity, not only about sexual immorality of Judah and Tamar, though it does involve that. It's about covenant fidelity. Judah does not care. He does not care about God and God's righteousness. After all, who, he's turning over, right, to a cult prostitute in verse 21. This is a cultic prostitute. And this is explicitly an act of idolatry. This is not only about sexual immorality, but this is explicitly an act of idolatry. And so we see Judah's heart. He is uncaring about someone put under his care by God because he's uncaring towards God. We saw the same about the brothers. Their hearts are far from God just like Abraham's was at one point. 
Just like Isaac's was at one point, just like Israel's was at one point, so is Judah's. But you see what's coming, don't you? Despite all of this abandonment, this not caring about covenant fidelity, the righteousness of God, doing the very things God calls people to do, and those things that God writes upon our hearts according to our conscience. Despite all the abandoning that they do, God never does. God keeps his people in his grace and by his grace. These are wicked people according to their sin. And we know that the Bible says that according to all of our sin, we earn for ourselves just condemnation worthy of judgment in hell. That's how wicked we are and these people are. Yet God keeps them in his grace. This is point number three where we see the resolution here. God's, God keeps people in his grace by his grace. Point number three is really the main point. The story reaches the climax there in verse 24. Go ahead and look there of chapter 38. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality or, or prostitution. Right? This here is a capital crime. So what Judah, how Judah responds here is, is actually right. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It's a capital crime. And the leader of the household calls for her own execution. Of course, little does he know that he is complicit in this affair. He too has been unfaithful to his own covenant responsibility, yet he doesn't care. And all of a sudden he cares when she is unfaithful. Look at verse 25. As she was being brought out, it's kind of like being brought to the place of execution, she sent word to her father-in-law. And all those things that God had given him and then he had handed over to her, which he thought was a cultic prostitute, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant, she said. Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So here she's being, imagine that, she's being brought out. She's freaking out, thinking that she's going to die for her immorality. And here we have somebody identify these things, the signet, the cord and the staff. What a rebuke this must have been to Judah. All of this evidence that says he is a perpetrator too. So we assume what this is like. Imagine all the shame and the guilt that was cast over Judah at this point in time. is publicly humiliated in his pride and all of these actions that he sought to keep in the dark are brought to light. You ever feel what that's like? This possible exposure? The shame here as uh, these things are being brought to light. I remember... Um, when I was a little kid, maybe six years old, taking the bus to school, and I threw a berry over a wall, and it hit a car. Uh, you know, I'm just having fun throwing, launching these berries at like 7.15 in the morning. And then soon enough, right, the principal comes and gets me in my classroom. Did you guys know this story, children? Uh, you didn't know this story. I don't think I told you. And I was so embarrassed. You know, I'm being called to the principal's office. That's not good Anytime you go there. And in my school career, thankfully, I, I wasn't called there too much. But this was the, the first of the episodes there. I was so embarrassed that he lectured me. And, of course, back then, you could actually paddle your students. And on the wall was that paddle. And I knew that I was guilty for something. And then he goes on to explain about how I was, what I did was not good. And I almost caused a car crash and such and such. And everything in me wanted to lie. 
I didn't like being exposed. I didn't like being caught. But I wanted to be in the clear, at least in the clear as I imagined myself to be. Here we have Judah faced with that moment to either live in his false reality and claim his innocence or to own his sin and to move forward in righteousness. You know what he's concerned with here? It's not his public standing by God's grace. It's not wanting to maintain his praise among the people or to save himself from embarrassment. It actually is, by God's grace, God and his righteousness. So if you look there, he says, you know, Tamar says, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah, then Judah identified them. He's, he's owning them right there. In God's kindness, in God's grace, Judah takes a step in a God-honoring decision, direction by owning his own sin, right? He claims the evidence of today. This is what it's like for us today. Imagine anybody, me, or anybody, surfing your internet history, printing it all out, and, and amongst this group saying, this is your internet history. Who is this? How many of you guys would have the guts to say, that's mine? And be so secure in the righteousness of God. And say, my God has covered me. And so I'm free from condemnation that you could launch at me, but secure in the righteousness of God. That's what it appears that Judah is doing here. He owns the evidence. Those are mine. It must have been embarrassing, but yet he owns them. Second thing he does here, a step in a good direction, is what he says. It's not only that he identifies, it's what he says. Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. That's all evidence of his righteousness. There is some sort of change going on here in Judah here. She is more righteous than I. She's not righteous because of her sexual misconduct. Absolutely not. And we know that because that's not, that's not even what he's talking about here. Though they are guilty of that. When Judah speaks of this righteousness, he's talking about covenant fidelity. He's talking about covenant faithfulness. In this moment, he realizes, it seems, that he has done nothing to fulfill the covenant that God writes upon his heart towards those in his family. Had she done wrong? Yes. But confession shows that she has, uh, his confession shows that she had a stronger pulse on God's law, God's law of covenant responsibility, than Judah did. Now keep in mind, she is a Gentile woman who dresses up like a prostitute, and yet she has a better understanding of God's covenant fidelity. What a rebuke this must have been to one of the heads of the tribes of Israel. A Gentile woman more righteous than the patriarch. Of course, if you're the patriarch, you feel the, the punch there. But if you are in need of God's grace like Tamar was, and of course, like Judah was, what a wonderful thing. And how awesome is it, too, that it makes it very clear Judah did not know her again. We see God's grace to those who abandon 
God's grace to those who abandon. Based on Judah's track record, even with his ownership of sin, even with the seeming repentance, where would you put Judah on the list of respectability? What future plans would you have for him if you could plan the future of God's people? You know, I think most people would put him on the bottom. Someone who sleeps with a cultic prostitute. But you know what God does with them? Turn over to chapter 48. And we see just what God does with sinners. Sorry, chapter 49, verse 8. Here he is a very sinful person doing some really messed up things. But then at the end of this whole story, you look and see at the position that Judah gets. Judah, your brothers. This is uh, Jacob. This is Israel pronouncing blessing on, on the 12 tribes here. Judah, your brothers shall praise, or your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. And he's the one who came up with the idea to sell his brother into slavery, mind you. He's saying the brothers will bow down before you. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have grown up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who, date, who dares rouse him. Now look at this. Not only, does he, not only does he possess respectability and honor before his brothers. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of peoples. It's amazing, isn't it? He possesses greater authority than brothers. That's the blessing. And, uh, and the brothers will recognize his position. And then his rulership would know no end. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What he's talking about is Jesus Christ the King coming from the line of Judah. This is why in Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's awesome because he, he sins, where, the story that we're looking at, and then all of a sudden in 49, he's given this great position of authority. And then we go back to his confession. She is more righteous than I. You know, I think in effort to apply this to our own lives, I think there's a lot of application for us as we think about Judah's very own situation. She, Tamar, stands for covenant righteousness. A covenant righteousness that really is defined by God's covenant righteousness. So when he says in his very own sense, she is more righteous than I, what he really says is God is more righteous than I. She is more steadfast in her understanding of covenant righteousness, but God is more steadfast in his covenant righteousness. That's what that story is about. God's grace to his people. People kept in God's grace by God's grace. It isn't based on his actions, which is so clear. But it's based on the righteousness of God. And here we are pointed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As God is more righteous than we are. Because of his own steadfast love, even though we were the covenant breakers, yet he pursues us in his love. Even though we are the ones who turn away to the wayside and prostitute ourselves to other idolatrous things, 
Yet God in His grace is so steadfast in His love to specifically those who abandon Him. That's what we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see wayward sinners going away, yet God in His grace sends Jesus Christ towards, to chase after, to pursue rebellious hearts that are so far from Him, even running away from Him. And He bears the sin that we have committed. And Jesus Christ bears the wrath that we deserve so that we might become the righteousness of God. He dies on the cross, sheds His blood. Three days later, He is risen from the dead to show all that payment is paid and God's righteousness is upheld. He is more righteous than we are. So we can own here, as fellow sinners with Judah, we can own here his proclamation and his confession. But there isn't always only grace for Judah, right? There is also grace for Tamar, a Gentile woman, guilty of her own sins, sure, but yet she had a desire to live under submission to God and His law. You know, you, we might f- expect for her to be memorialized in Scripture as a devious or a loose woman. She was, after all, being brought out in front of everyone to be shamed and to be executed. But Scripture presents us with the right balance. Yeah, sure, it doesn't hide us her sins, not at all. But she is, she ends up being memorialized in Scripture, as not as a prostitute, but as a renowned mother of Israel. This is how she's known in, in the Old Testament book of Ruth. She's proclaimed as being one of the mothers of the uh, significant men of, of Israel, Perez. And then this is also how she's known in the New Testament book of Matthew. Go ahead and turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. This here we have in verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we got the lineage of Jesus. And who do we see named there in verse 3? Tamar. Lowly Gentile woman. Desperate straits. Who, yes, commits some very sinful and shameful things. But yet God in His grace brings her into the lineage of Jesus and is one of the only, is the only three women named in this genealogy to bring about the Savior. How incredible is that? Grace. For a sinner. And we see that in Tamar. But grace does not only go towards Judah. Grace does not only go towards Tamar. Grace goes to the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery. There's a number of reversals here that take place by the grace of God. For Judah who played a leading role in selling their brother. By God's grace by the end of the story. It is Judah himself who is offering himself up as a slave to who he thinks is is, a... an Egyptian leader, royalty, in an effort to secure the safety of his youngest brother. He's the one who comes up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, but then by the end of the story, after transformation has already taken place, he offers up himself as a slave to save his brother and to care for his father. Not only that, though, the very things that Judah and his brothers wanted to sell Joseph for, that is material gain, It is exactly what the brothers need to rely on Joseph for. They throw him into the pit to get 20 
shekels of silver, 20 pieces of silver. Little do they know that God, by his grace, will give grace to all of the brothers by showering on them all of the blessings of Egypt. And that points us to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Joseph, really, points us to Christ, as we're going to see in the, in the weeks to come. Here, he knows that these brothers are against him, but yet he forgives the very ones who try and kill him. It's the same story with Jesus. We who commit sins that land on the shoulders of Jesus, but yet Jesus cries out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You know, this grace can be yours. You see these reversals here for serious sinners, people who abandon their brother. You got Judah abandoning his daughter-in-law. We know ourselves to be of those who abandon too. But yet, as Genesis shows us all throughout Genesis and all throughout Scripture, this grace, these reversals can be for you too. If you would own your sin like Judah does. And proclaim that there was someone righteous, more righteous than we could ever be. And so fall on our faces, acknowledging our sin and crying out to Christ for salvation. If you do that, friends, you will be saved. If you have any questions about this gospel, please talk to your friend who brought you. Talk to me afterwards. I'll be standing there at the back of the door. We can talk about the gospel. We can study the Bible together and learn more about this grace. Well, to conclude, God keeps his people in his grace by his grace. That's a very encouraging story, that even the worst of sinners are not cast off by God, but are kept by God. And certainly they are kept even in the grace of ongoing repentance and faith. Thank God that we as Christians ought not primarily be known, or we will not be primarily known by what we have done wrong or our sins, but we are known as being objects of God's mercy and His grace. Our weakness becomes a canvas for God's strength and God's grace when we have the humility by His grace to acknowledge our need of His salvation. Beautiful story. God's grace for sinners. God's grace for those who solicit prostitutes. God's grace for those who act like them. God's grace for those who commit selfish acts against their brothers worthy of capital crimes. God's grace for those who sin Jesus Himself bears on the cross. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You that You are a gracious and merciful God, that Your love is steadfast to a thousand generations of those who love You and keep Your commands. That is who You are. Father, we pray that in our sin and in our temptation, we would know You. We would know these characteristics. And so, You indeed would be our vision and we would proclaim that all we have is Christ because You are more righteous than we are. Father, we pray that you would give us a humility that owns sin. But Lord, we pray too that you would protect us from an ungodly guilt and an ungodly shame that says that Christ's work on the cross has not borne our guilt and our shame and the wrath that we deserve. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us lift our eyes in the helmet of salvation, with the helmet of salvation, and turn to the gospel once again. To know that there is free and full forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray.
Amen.